Jones, Australia's leading voice. Well, good evening. Thank you again for being with us. Pleasingly, the number of our viewers continues to grow. We are the common sense station. You won't get any of that woke nonsense here. Indeed, I will return at some length to the now infamous Thorburn affair with the Essendon Football Club. Plainly, it is the president who should be gone and Thorburn recalled. I'll also have something to say about the tax debate. Not that there's any debate. You certainly don't get anything constructive on the debate front in Canberra. But some Labor MPs are getting nervous about the stage three tax cuts. I'll look at that in some detail. But I must say on tax cuts, a proposal has been put to me which has merit. And I thank one of my viewers for this, and I should have identified this earlier, but small companies with tax debts suffered massive losses in business due to the government's compulsory COVID shutdowns. So they can't pay their COVID shutdown debts and they're being confronted with liquidation. I think the Commonwealth Government should forgive such tax debts and save those companies. If they're not saved, people go into welfare. Let these battlers restructure and let employment with them continue. The alternative is small business carnage. And then there's coal. Global coal-fired electricity increased in the last 12 months by 8.5%. Coal is booming, but you won't hear about that on the ABC. Last year, China, India and a stack of other Asian nations expanded their coal-fired power generation because they know that without it, energy security and strong economic growth are unachievable. But this dope Chris Bowen thinks he knows better. Now, we talk about crises. Today, we learn that crippling skills shortages across the economy have almost doubled in 12 months with 286 occupations facing desperate worker shortfalls amid historically low unemployment and record job advertisements. Now, I've said often to the Albanese government, especially the Prime Minister, the rhetoric is over. It's time now to solve some of these problems, massive skills shortages. And not that we need being told, but Sydney has broken the record for its wettest year in history approximately 2,200 millimetres, 88 inches on the old scale. Think about it. That averages over seven inches a month. Inland towns are bracing for more flooding. The Bureau is forecasting up to 100 millimetres of rain in some areas. As I speak to you, it is absolutely torrential. You've virtually got to swim to get into the studio. Large hailstones are forecast and damaging winds. The trouble is the rivers and dams are full. The water's got nowhere else to go. Hence flooding. The son of the dictator Ferdinand Marcos took office in June in the Philippines. The former president, Rodrigo Duterte, threatened journalists who documented his violent anti-drug campaign. And it's said that at least 23 journalists were killed in the Philippines during Duterte's six-year presidency. Well, a news radio host, Percival Mabasa, known to his followers as Percy Lapid, had accused top Philippine officials of corruption in his hard-hitting radio program. He was shot dead in his car during an ambush near his home yesterday. His brother said those behind the killing are those he's been criticising on his radio show. Also tonight on this show, I'll have something to say about Badgerys Creek Airport. Are we heading 
for an expensive white elephant. Another dose of common sense from Mark Latham and a word on the Liberal Party. There are members in great numbers mobilising for common sense, but they may be unwanted. You're watching ADH, I'm Alan Jones. As the Thorburn affair at the Essendon Football Club in Melbourne gathers momentum, one thing is clear. It is the Essendon president, this Dave Barham, who should go, not Andrew Thorburn, and he should be gone today. His ignorance and prejudice have no place in any administration, let alone in the management of young men. Andrew Thorburn is guilty by association with a sermon preached nine years ago. But that sermon preached traditional Christian morality. Andrew Thorburn's association with that has led to his loss of employment. The Christian view of abortion is that it involves the destruction of innocent human lives. The Pope makes this point all the time. It is central to most Christian teachings. Daniel Andrews seems now attuned to the concept of freedom, which he has dishonoured and discarded during his premiership. The sermon on the City on a Hill Church website, according to him, Andrews, were bigotry, or the sermons, plural, bigotry and hatred. Yet one of those sermons was about sexual expression, which the preacher argued should be reserved for marriage, that marriage is between a man and a woman. But that's the Orthodox Christian view. Again, it's the view of the Pope. The sermon argued that sex outside marriage was morally wrong. Now, many people don't hold that view. I voted yes in the same-sex marriage purpose because I didn't think, along with many others, that the state should enforce Christian morality. But that's not the point. The church that Andrew Thorburn heads is not running a campaign against gay people, but to be identified with Christian morality has now cost him his job. Barham, the president, said Mr Thorburn couldn't continue to serve in his dual roles as Essendon, as the CEO of Essendon and chairman of City on a Hill, a small group of Christian churches. Now, just a minute. A sermon from 2013 said that acting on same-sex attraction was a sin and another likened abortion to murder. I repeat, the belief in the sanctity of life that is against abortion and that sexual relations belong within heterosexual marriage is no surprise. For centuries, those views have been the doctrines of most religions, including Christianity. But if the CEO is to go because of his identification with a church, one of whose pastors expressed these views on abortion and by inference, homosexuality, is every player within the Essendon Club going to be cross-examined about his beliefs on abortion and same-sex marriage? and he may not fit the values of the club. If you identify with those views, says this bloke Barham, the president of Essendon, they're inconsistent with the values of the club. It's clear Barham doesn't know where he stands and nor does Daniel Andrews. A few days ago, Barham welcomed Andrew Thorburn as quote, a man of great integrity and exceptional vision who would run the club quote, with a renewed focus on our members and the core reason why we exist, football. Well, it appears the core reason goes beyond football. The club exists, apparently, to analyse and judge the personal lives of others, along with their religious views. Even though Mr Thorburn never expressed those views, they were expressed in sermons long before he became chairman of the church. As for Andrews, he was asked whether people with religious ties should apply for public roles. And he responded, quote, well, they might want to have a think about whether they should be perhaps a bit more kind-hearted, a bit more inclusive, unquote the usual Andrew's hypocrisy, being inclusive obviously doesn't include Andrew Thorburn, 
who now joins the long list of people who've suffered religious discrimination. Try Margaret Court, Israel Folau, J.K. Rowling, Jermaine Greer, Jeffrey Blaney, Barry Humphreys, all of whom would not conform to this neo-Marxist inspired group think. Kevin Donnelly, who writes splendidly on these things, a wonderful educationalist, today quotes the American non-binary feminist, that is, she doesn't identify as male or female, Camille Paglia, who has argued, quote, we are plunged once again into an ethical chaos where intolerance masquerades as tolerance and where individual liberty is crushed by the tyranny of the group, unquote. Here we are, Big Brother, the Thought Police, Conformity, and Andrew Thorburn, identified with prevailing Christian orthodoxy, is out of a job. What's our role in this? Well, we have to continue to demand free and open debate. And a common sense program like this says, we must defend the right to freedom, which entitles people to be free to say things with which others don't agree. Daniel Andrews is saying, we must tolerate those who agree with abortion and we must tolerate those who agree with same-sex marriage. But this is the point. As Camille Pagley has said, Andrews is preaching tolerance when his own utterances are promoting intolerance, where Thorburn's individual liberty is denied and his job is sacrificed. We are, viewers, in dangerous territory, as I said last night, when it comes to expressing one's values and beliefs. After Thorburn, people are generally concerned, if not frightened, about their employment fate. This is a savage attack on freedom of speech, as with the pastor, and freedom of religion, as with Thorburn. But worse, there is an ignorant and intolerant president of the Essendon Football Club who's ordering a fellow Australian, Andrew Thorburn, as to how he should live his life. If, as seems the case, unless you're a follower of woke, there are no employment guarantees anymore. If the Essendon Club is not prepared to travel this woke road and potentially put at risk the contracts of every player who may have similar views to the preacher, if Essendon don't want to be identified with the public attitude of their president, Barham, who by his actions believes that preaching Christian morality or by being identified with previous Christian preachings is a crime, if Essendon don't want to be identified in this way, then the president, Barham, should go and Thorburn should be reinstated. Well, look, I don't apologise for saying this. At the end of the week, it is nice to be able to hear a dose of common sense. And who else do we turn to but the outstanding One Nation leader in the New South Wales Parliament, who many think should be running the country, Mark Latham. He, more than anyone else, highlights the political and philosophical mess that we're in. Last month, Mark Latham asked the New South Wales top health bureaucrat to define a woman. Listen to this. Thank you. Uh, Ms Pearce, um, under your leadership of the department, uh, what is the definition of a woman? Um, Mr Latham, I don't know that the health department has issued a definition of a woman. Well, that I'm a, aware it, of, I'd have to... It, it was described by your uh, federal counterpart as a contested space and it's uh, been uh, debated uh, in the upper house, for instance, where the Minister for Regional Health provided contradictory answers. Uh, does health follow the definition in the New South Wales uh, Anti-Discrimination Act or, as at one point the other minister suggested, you follow the definition in the federal statute? Uh, I'll take that on notice. I'm not aware of any.
Mark, that's just unbelievable. I mean, I, I should say to our viewers, following this, Mark Latham was attacked for pursuing this line of questioning. And I must congratulate you, Mark, on your absolute restraint. Um, isn't it extraordinary, though, that you've got people calling you a bully who are themselves trying to bully you? Uh, Brad Hazard, for example. But come back to this answer by Susan Pearce. It is unbelievable, isn't it? And that's an overused word, but it's unbelievable. Yeah, you'd think it was a trick question. Uh, what I was doing was asking a woman, Susan Pearce, who we pay half a million dollars a year to run the New South Wales health system, uh, to define a woman, given the fact that, you know, we've got all this uh, wacky language out there um, that's an insult to women, um, particularly um, pregnant women, and only women can get pregnant where they're described as the lactating parent and, and all this sort of nonsense, which is around in the health system. And you think she'd be ready with a definition Instead, as you saw there, she took it on notice, which means, Alan, she goes and sits on a hill and has a philosophy lesson about it for a month <laughs> to try and figure out what is a woman, what is she as a woman. And she's come back today, actually, with an answer, which is, I refer the member to the response provided at Legislative Council notice paper, answer 8626, where the answer is, New South Wales, this is what the, the head of the department is saying on what is a woman, New South Wales health role is to ensure all patients receive the appropriate medical assistance irrespective of gender. So she still can't say. What? She won't say. What? She has no definition of a woman other than saying, oh, we treat all patients regardless of their gender. Now, even Dominic Perrottet, the Premier, has said quite correctly, a woman is an adult biological female. Why can't she say that? Why can't she say what the Premier said? I just find this is all for fear of unbelievable. transgender lobby. I mean, Murphy. All for fear of yep. offending transgender that, lobby. And we found out in the census last week, the transgender lobby uh, answering non-binary in the census are 0.17% of the population. So for fear of upsetting 0.17% of the population, the highly paid Susan Pearce won't say what a woman is when women, including herself, are 50% of the population. I mean, I just, out there, I don't know what people out there are saying. I mean, Brad Hazard persisted in interrupting. She's indicated she'll take it on notice. Why the hell you'd take it on notice? You then asked uh, with, you, you agree, or you asked it, and this is the question. Mark said to her, do you agree with the Premier? It is a person born biologically female. She didn't even agree to that, Mark. She said, no, I've got to take it on notice. And you're accused of playing silly games. Well, I think it's a massive insult to every woman in New South Wales that when they present at a hospital for medical treatment, most particularly in the maternity ward, the head of the health department and the health system is unable to say what a woman is. And, and just last week in Newcastle at a community meeting, I had a, um, a complaint, very serious complaint, a woman upset that her mother-in-law presented um, at uh, a hospital with ovarian cancer and had to fill in a form to declare what gender she was. Well, obviously, if you've got ovarian cancer, um, you, you're a woman. And um, the, the, the lady was grossly offended by it. I mean, people are worried that Very. their obvious gender, uh, female and male, is not yeah. being recognised by the health system and under the stress of medical attention, it can be very upsetting, traumatic for people. So you'd think that uh, at least this Susan Pearce, instead of providing non-answers, effectively no answer, would agree with the Premier and just say the obvious. It's an adult biological female but, and get on with her job, her yeah. highly paid job. But you you raised the New South Wales 
Anti-Discrimination Act of 1977. She didn't even allude to that. There is a definition there which says a woman means a member of the female sex irrespective of age. The age question is added. That means a six-year-old is still a woman, a six-year-old or a 60-year-old. Uh, I mean, but two months, two months after Professor Murphy took Alex Antich's question on notice, he provided a definition in 78 words, which included the Department of Health does not adopt a single definition. The frameworks adopted to define a person's gender include chromosomal makeup, the gender assigned at birth, and the gender with which a person identifies. Alec Antich responded by saying it was absolute drivel. You'd agree, wouldn't you? Well, yeah, it's like a Monty Python skit, it isn't is. it? These are highly paid bureaucrats <laughs> who can't state the obvious. And it's like watching Monty Python at their peak. So, Alan, we can laugh about it, but I suppose the serious side is Very. a lot of people get offended by it, uh, mm. quite rightly so, when they're in the medical system needing attention and having to fill out silly forms declaring the obvious, or even worse, uh, pregnant women being described as the, the, the or new, new, uh, newly arrived mothers uh, being described as the lactating parent. It's grossly offensive. Mm. And, um, uh, you know, this stuff is just but off when the you radar, asked the Louis. question, you asked, you persisted in trying to get an answer and Brad Hazard, the health minister, called you a bully. Well, he did. I'm, I'm just representing constituents of mine upset in the health system about this and others in the general public thinking that the whole system's just gone um, about mm. crazy, mm. gone absolutely mad. Just that a woman about... at the head of the health system can't define what a woman yeah. is when the Premier's already done it. So, just... you know, Hazard uh, had plenty of abuse of me. I said to him, Alan, I'd been insulted by professionals. Yes. I'm sorry, Brad, you're not in their league. Not and, in uh, their league. And that was the truth of it. Well, just, just talking about people who really don't know their job, as you and I are speaking right now, and to our viewers all over Australia, all over the world, it is absolutely pelting with rain in Sydney. The record of rainfall for a year in Sydney has been broken. Uh, so far, we've had 2,200 millimetres, which is about 88 inches. If you divide that by 12, it averages out at seven inches every month and more. It's pelting with rain, yet we had to suffer the stupidity of a person called Flannery, who was made Australian of the Year for arguing that the dams would never fill, it wouldn't ever rain again. Mark, how do these people get away with this? Well, it's amazing. I mean, climate change analysis is a cult. Effectively, on the left, it's a you know quasi-religious belief that they've got, and anything they say uh, as part of that cult seems to be acceptable. Now, Tim Flannery said that the rivers and dams in Sydney would never fill again. Alan, they must have filled 20 times in the last 18 months, yes. and they're filling again today. So th this bloke could have university sinecures around the place. Do they defrock him, take his robe off him, and take away his silly hat and say, listen, mate, you are so wrong in your predictions... Yes. and such a false prophet. You should never come anywhere near the higher education system again. Do the media cancel this guy for being, you know, more incorrect than anyone in, in our recent public life? Of course not. These people uh, live on and move on to different iterations. Uh, remember at the time of the 2019-20 bushfires, the uh, Green left said, we'll have bushfires every single summer in Sydney. Well, ever since they said that, it hasn't stopped raining and the summers have never been so mild and there's not a bushfire within Cooey. So they get it wrong time after time after time. They want climate change to be true. They need it to be true inside their cult. And they consistently conflate weather events with climate. And not surprisingly, they consistently get it wrong. Absolutely. Thorburn, Andrew Thorburn, the so-called Thorburn Affair, uh, Essendon Club, the pastor 
is been, we, he made the statements seven or eight years ago, but he's denied freedom of speech. He's not meant to say these things. Thorburn is denied freedom of religion. Um, I note back in January, a Muslim female in women's AFL playing for the Giants said she would sit out the pride round because as a Muslim, she had a responsibility to represent her faith and her community. That wasn't a problem to the Giants coach, Alan McConnell. And I said today that Thorburn should be reinstated and the intolerant Essendon president, Barham, should go. Your thoughts, Mark? Well, you're right about uh, Haneem Zarika from the Giants, who sat out the game because of the pride jersey, according to her Islamic faith. And she was hailed, Alan, as a good example of multiculturalism and the mature tolerance of our society and the AFL code that they could put up and tolerate her religious point of view. So that's for Islam, but almost identical views expressed by this church that Thorburn has headed up in more recent times. Uh, he's kicked out of the public square and kicked out of his position at the club. So it just shows you the extent of religious discrimination against Christians. And why is this happening? Well, the lefties know that if they bring down Christianity, they're bringing down one of the essential pillars of our civilization, our moral code, and many of the good things that have happened in civil society. And, you know, as I said uh, in my maiden speech in this uh, state parliament, and you were there that night, um, no one in our society should feel prohibited or afraid of saying two, uh, sorry, of saying four of the most glorious words in the history of our civilization: "I am a Christian." And unfortunately, now saying those words, "I am a Christian." is not seen as a glorious contribution to our civilization. It's seen as a reason to cancel people, sack them from their jobs. And, and this is uh, one of the worst trends in our society that we could possibly have. Good on you, Mark. Wonderful to talk to you. I told you, viewers, every week you get a dose of common sense from this bloke. Aren't we lucky to have him? Mark, thank you for everything. And I can assure all of you who are worried about Mark, he's been on a fitness kick, which did surprise me, I have to say, because he's a bit of a cook. And he, we actually launched a cookbook. Well. You launched a cookbook, put my picture on the front, and at the back of it, put one my one recipe. <laughs> but it was a big seller. Well, a big yeah. se <laughs> it, it was a big success. People still talk about it every day. <laughs> and uh, um, in, in terms of losing a, a bit of weight, uh, I'm in good physical condition. And what's more, Alan, I am a man. I can define what it is to be a man, and um, uh, my masculinity has never been stronger. Good on you. Well done. Great to talk to you, Mark. Thank you for your time. There he is, Mark Latham. He's the leader of the One Nation Party in the New South Wales Parliament. I sense this is going to be a bigger issue than it is today. Badgerys Creek Airport. This thing was announced in 2014 by the then federal leader of the National Party, Warren Truss. He then said that the airport would be a 24-7 operation. At the time, many questions were raised. The New South Wales Premier, Barry O'Farrell, was opposed, the then New South Wales Premier. He was opposed. Badgerys Creek is 46 kilometres from Sydney. It's never been explained how you get 500,000 litres of fuel a day to Badgerys Creek. There is no pipeline to Badgerys Creek or Wilton. Are there going to be dozens of tankers every hour moving petrol from the refineries on the coast? I remember the argument at the time that the site was too small and international jets could only land but not take off. Tony Abbott, when he was Prime Minister, made the very sensible point that infrastructure should be built before the airport. That hasn't happened. In the year 2000, Prime Minister Howard said Sydney didn't need a second airport. Simon Crean was the Labor opposition leader and declared in 2003 there was no way Labor would build an airport at Badgerys Creek. 
In 2012, the Federal Infrastructure Minister, the current Prime Minister, ruled out Badgerys Creek. A range of councils in Western Sydney were totally opposed. Jackie Kelly was then a heroine in the area. One of their federal members, she was opposed. Have Qantas and Virgin and regional airlines indicated their willingness to use Badgerys Creek? Would major airlines run the risk of flying to an airport, of scheduling flights, without any knowledge of whether passengers would follow? I remember Tony Abbott saying that building roads would have to happen before building airports. Well, that hasn't happened. Here we have the Perrottet government demanding the federal government stump up funding for a promised public transport connection to Sydney's new airport amid concerns from many local mayors and business groups that many residents would be forced to drive if they wanted to catch a plane. Badgerys Creek is supposed to open in 2026, but there are no rapid bus links because of major delays in funding from state and federal governments. Premier Perrottet is saying the arrangement for the rapid bus links was that the federal government would provide 80% of the funding, the state 20% of the $1.6 billion project. The Federal Labor Infrastructure Minister, Catherine King, has said funding the rapid bus links is a matter for the New South Wales government. In other words, there are no viable public transport options. And if people were to land at Badgerys Creek, how do they get to Sydney? The local member, Ed Husick, has been silent on all of this. He's now the Federal Minister for Industry and Science. I remember interviewing him in 2014. He was opposed to the Badgerys Creek Airport. He's silent now. Will the fuel be carried from the oil refineries at Kernhill to Badgerys Creek by tankers? Imagine, dozens of tankers every hour moving petrol from the refineries on the coast. All weather studies show that fog in winter is common. I remember in 2017 receiving a letter, and I dug it up today from an informed listener, which said, quote, now that the federal government has decided to finance the construction of the second airport at Badgerys Creek, they might want to buy a giant fog vacuum machine as the site is located bang smack in the middle of a dense winter fog basin that often doesn't lift until mid-morning, unquote. How many hours in the day? is their little movement of aircraft coming and going from Kingsford Smith. Way back people, including the Prime Minister Howard, argued that we should lift the curfew at Kingsford Smith rather than build Badgerys Creek. Are we building a white elephant? Asked the great Australian industrialist Lindsay Fox, who paid millions of dollars for Department of Defence land at Avalon, northeast of Geelong, 53 kilometres from Melbourne. Lindsay Fox couldn't make Avalon pay. It's a dud. May Badgerys Creek Follow Avalon. Well, let's go as we do at this time in the week, every week, to the very articulate and very informed and very credible Deputy Executive Director of the Institute of Public Affairs, Daniel Wild. We have been talking about The Voice. There is a lot of nonsense being cited. And indeed, one of the arguments used to silence people like Daniel and me and others is to say, oh, well, you can't be believed. You're saying it's a third chamber. This is not the argument about the voice. We don't care whether it's a third chamber. Let's agree that it's not going to be a third chamber. Let's make that explicit. But that's not the reason why there has to be a no voice for the voice. Uh, for the voice. Let's bring Daniel in. Daniel, the argument here has got nothing to do with third chambers. This is an argument whereby we're enshrining race in the constitution for a minority of people of a, well, for a group of people who get a vote to go into the Constitution this way based on race. 
You're 100% right, Alan. Uh, this is about racial equality and that every Australian, regardless of their background, their race, their gender, their religion, how much income they have, no matter what, you are Australian. Everybody gets the same say. An equal voice. The voice to parliament would work. An yeah, equal voice. 100% right. And the voice to and the voice of parliament would divide us by race permanently in our constitution. That's the issue. Uh, and uh, secondly, it would provide different and separate political and legal rights for one group of Australians based on their race, and that's why the voice is a enormously concerning concept. Absolutely. That's the guts of it. Now, as we look figures today, there are 150 members of the House of Representatives. There are 76 members, 12 for each state and two for each of the territories, 76 members total, 226. Indigenous Australians, and we're grateful for that, have 11 of those people, 11 of 226. That is 4.8% of the parliament. 4.8% of the population would be about 1.2 million people. There aren't 1.2 million people on the census that identify as Indigenous Australians. So indeed, it could be argued that far from not having a voice in the parliament, they are overrepresented. Now, the notion of having a voice, a special voice to be heard, to be not excluded and so on, you and I'd like a voice, wouldn't we? Wouldn't we like someone to ask us about debt, uh, about the educational curriculum? There's plenty of things we'd like to have a voice on, but we elect people to have that voice, don't we? We do, Alan. We should have an Aussie battler voice. That's it. Uh, in Parliament. Struggle the, Street uh, voice. Uh, a struggle know, those, Street voice. It, it, struggle Street voice. And look, those mainstream Australians in the suburbs and regions, they don't have a voice. Neither major political party uh, talks about the issues they're concerned about. The major institutions of our society, whether it's big corporates or uh, the media elites or academia, they don't represent the views and aspirations of mainstream um, Australians. So if there is, is going to be a separate voice, it should be a, a voice for mainstream um, Australians. Indeed, the wealthy inner city elites now have their own voice, the Teals. The only people that don't have a voice are hardworking men and women, families and small businesses in this country that are consistently put last by the inner city elites. That's it. And why are we saying no? Well, let me read to you from the final report on The Voice to the government, which says in part, engagement with the national voice would ideally occur early in the development of relevant laws and policies to allow for a partnership approach. The Australian parliament and government would be obliged, this is here in the document, obliged to ask the national voice for advice on a defined and limited number of proposed laws for policies that overwhelmingly affect Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples. Now, Daniel's just made the point. The ordinary Australian's not consulted about policies that overwhelmingly affect him, but it goes on. There would also be an expectation to consult the national voice based on a set of principles on a wider group of policies and laws that significantly affect Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples. So, Daniel, the government would be obliged to consult this national voice. They would be, Alan, and that would be on every single major piece of legislation Absolutely. because Indigenous Australians are Australians, just as we all are. So whether it's tax, whether it's transport, whether it's infrastructure, whether it's health, whether it's education, all of those policy areas, defence, all of those policy areas affect Indigenous Australians in the same way they affect all Australians. So this Indigenous voice 
there would be a compulsion on government to consult with that voice on every single uh, major piece of legislation before the government. Now, this has the capacity to simply grind the whole operation of parliament to a halt. Right, what if they say, no, we don't agree with this? Yep. What off happens to the courts. Then? These are the questions that have yet to be answered. Off to the courts. Off to the courts. We've got an enshrined constitutional right to be consulted. It's in the constitution. They haven't consulted us on this. Off to the courts. That's right, Alan. And can I just make one other point on this, this issue of mainstream Australians not having their voice heard? You know, whether it's net zero, we didn't get to have a say on that because both parties had the same policy. Whether it's mass migration, we don't get a say on that. Whether it's lockdowns and so forth, we didn't get a say on that. And in fact, people like yourself, when you raise questions about lockdowns, about other government issues, mm -hmm. you risk getting cancelled. Oh, yes. You know, so this yep. is the issue. When you do speak up, when you have mainstream Australians speaking up or people like yourself who speak on behalf of mainstream Australians, you risk getting cancelled and shut down by the mainstream media. So this is the big issue we face in our nation. Absolutely. More now than ever before. Now, this document also says, the report to Parliament is called, it says the national voice would provide the mechanism to ensure Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples have a direct say on any national laws, policies and programs affecting them. Now, as Daniel just said, health, education, transport, they all affect them. So government will be in lockdown, shut down until they consult with these people. And then if they're enshrined in the constitution based on race, then they race off to the courts to say, we've got these powers. They're validated in the constitution and they're not being honored by the government. Uh, Daniel, the other thing about all of this is uh, the voice. It's, it's a misnomer because I understand they're talking about a group of about 24 people we don't know who they are. We don't know who votes for them. Is there, going to be, is there going to be a roll call of who's entitled to vote for The Voice? 24 of them. Well, that's right, Alan. Who are they? Uh, and the other key point is that this will simply mean more politicians in Canberra. I mean, I don't think the solution to the vast challenges in Indigenous communities and also across remote Australia, no matter your background, is going to be solved by more politicians in Canberra and more bureaucracy in Canberra, because that's what the voice will be. You can be assured that there will be thousands of more public servants, hundreds of millions or billions of more dollars spent in programs. Mm. Uh, tragically, mm. the lack of education, the poor health outcomes, the issues with violence in communities, they're not gonna be resolved by another bureaucratic body um, in Canberra. We know what helps people get out of poverty. It's work, it's having a good education, it's having crime-free suburbs, uh, and it's having access to critical services. We don't need more politicians in Canberra to tell us that. What we need is governments to get on with the job. Yeah, and this is what Senator Price now, Jacinta Price has said, you and I have spoken to her often, wonderful lady, and she said, nothing in this does anything to alleviate the problems faced by Indigenous Australians in the Northern Territory, which she knows backwards. On the contrary, whenever she seeks to raise these issues, no one wants to listen to her. That's right. It's ironic we're talking about a voice for Indigenous Australians, uh, but one of the most prominent voices, not just for Indigenous Australians, but I think for our whole country, Jacinta Price, uh, is often shut down by those very people who say Indigenous Australians need a louder voice. So they're not, they're not looking for a voice for Indigenous Australians. They're looking for a certain kind of voice. And you can bet your bottom dollar that it's going to be wealthy inner city activists that are going to play, be playing a key role 
in this voice, including those that are representing the voice in Canberra. It's not going to be those out in no. suburbs and regions. It's going to be another body full of inner city wealthy elites. Okay, well, let me ask you this question. As we speak at the moment, this may change, but they've already committed themselves. Uh, the big corporates, media, by and large, almost all of them, headline media, editorialising in the major newspapers and on television. So big corporates, big media, big celebrities, big sporting organisations have already, I venture to say they haven't even read this document of the parliament, but they've already committed themselves to supporting The Voice and they're advocating support for The Voice. How do we turn this around? How do we get these people half informed? Well, the way we do it, Alan, is through programs like this and ADH. You've yes. got to download the app to make sure you don't get cancelled and you can keep watching it. <laughs> but don't forget, this is not dissimilar to what happened in 1999 Republic referendum yes. where almost every single major institution of our society was in favour of the Republic, including almost every single major newspaper, for example. But the Australian people saw through that campaign. This mm. has similarities to that. I think this is going to be more difficult, but don't forget there are a lot of people speaking out against the yep. voice, whether it's Senator Jacinta yep. Price, whether it's former Prime Minister Tony Abbott, whether it's yourself, Alan, there's many speaking out against it. it. So our task is to keep going and not to take a backward step or be intimidated by these, uh, you know, big corporate inner city woke elites. Good on you. Brilliant. And we'll keep talking about it. It won't be a one-off issue here because I know from the correspondence of getting, people are saying keep at it and we will keep at it. This is not good for Australia. It's not good for Indigenous Australia. And it's not for good for those people who are just out there behind the west of the Great Dividing Range who have no representation at all. So, Daniel, great to talk to you. Thank you for the work you're doing. Daniel Wilde, articulate, always well-informed, the Deputy Executive Director of the Institute of Public Affairs and we won't be going away on this issue. In Australia's interest, we can't afford to. The first thing you learn as Prime Minister or working for a Prime Minister is that before long, you run into roadblocks. They're coming quick and fast at the Albanese government. Strange to say the one issue that's dividing the government now is this question of the stage three tax cuts because they don't come into being until 2024. These tax cuts were opposed by the Albanese Labor opposition at first, at a time when Albo was trying to keep all sections of the voter community happy, 2018. It happens with oppositions. But the same opposition then passed them through and argued support for them in the 2019 and 2022 election campaigns. The Parliamentary Budget Office believes that stage three tax cuts will cost $183.4 billion in the first seven years but almost 140 billion will be directed to Australians on $120,000 or more. Now this is where stupidity kicks in and this ridiculous argument that they'll benefit the rich. The reality is the people on greater incomes pay more tax. So when you cut taxes at any level, you are reducing the tax burden of people currently paying more tax. So that shouldn't be an issue. What's involved here is a simple proposition. Up to $18,200, you will pay no tax. The tax rate used to be 19 cents in the dollar between 18,201 and 41,000. Under stage three, it will be 19 cents in the dollar up to 45,000. Then the 37 cents in the dollar tax rate will be abolished altogether. So from 45,001 up to 200,000, you'll pay 30 cents in the dollar. Very sensible. Give people the opportunity to do well 
and keep more of what they earn from doing well. Over 200,000 is 45 cents in the dollar. The beef by some is that a politician on a base salary of 217,000 will get a tax cut of almost 10,000. A registered nurse on about 72,000 will get a tax cut of $681. But this, as I've previously said, is a potentially lethal argument unless you get into the ring and explain the common sense principle that when tax cuts apply, the person already paying more tax will get a greater tax cut. Politically, the argument to not go ahead with them is a minefield. 2.5 million middle-income Australians would pay thousands of dollars in additional tax if the Albanese government backed down on implementing stage three. Treasurer Chalmers has created in part the split amongst Labor MPs by saying the package was under review. I come back to a brutal political point. This was supported by Labor when in opposition and a central component in their last two election campaigns. If stage three is scrapped, a wage earner on $120,000 would be $1,875 worse off. A household of two on $120,000 and $80,000 would be collectively $2,750 worse off. Now, pardon the language, but there are people within the government saying that whatever decision is taken, it would be a shit sandwich. On the one hand, the political pain of a broken promise in order to presumably save $183.4 billion over seven years, in the unlikely event that Labor lasts that long, or $15.7 billion in the first year. But remember this, Dr Chalmers doesn't want to start hoodwinking the electorate. These amounts are already provided for in the forward estimates. By 2024, when the tax cuts are due, and when you see where interest rates are going, the forecasts, if ever you can believe forecasts, argue there'd be a downturn in economic growth in 2024, and that the economy would be quote unquote very weak, and that we might have got inflation back to 3%, but the increases in interest rates would have bashed the stomach out of the economy. So all this makes 2024 a perfect time for tax cuts. The ACTU via Sally McManus argued yesterday that that money should be used to fund higher pay for care workers and for families struggling with a rising cost of living, that the Labor Party supported stage three in 2018 when the world was a very different place. Her words, quote, there was no COVID and no lockdowns, there was no JobKeeper, and while wages were stagnant then, workers were not facing the absolute cost of living crisis confronting them today, unquote. She argued, and her views deserve consideration, quote, good policy is having an open and honest national conversation about the problems we face it requires adaption to changing circumstances, unquote. Now, all of that sounds perfectly valid, but there are two realities. The higher the income tax rate, the greater the disincentive to work. The second point is Labor campaigned in 2019 and 22 federal elections on keeping the tax cuts. Labor are entitled to be concerned about the political fallout from a broken promise five months after the election, because they're talking about this announcement being made in the budget in two weeks. This is an acid test for Treasurer Jim Palmer's. An analysis of the tax cuts reveals that while stage three does benefit the top 10% of taxpayers, and I've already explained why that is so, it also delivers tax cuts to the top 78% of taxpayers. They'll all get a tax cut. Anyone with a taxable income over 45,000 or over benefits from stage three. 
Now, it's a waste of space listening to people like Adam Bant, who rants that the wealthiest 20% get close to 80% of the money, you dope. Someone should explain to Mr. Bant that might be because the top 20% of workers in Australia are paying 80% of all the tax. The Prime Minister has been asked regularly whether he's committed to the tax cuts. Perhaps Jim Chalmers, the Treasurer, should note the Prime Minister's comments when asked whether he would drop the tax cuts to accommodate the Greens. On May 16, the PM said of Stage 3, quote, they have been legislated. We support them. We stand by that. We don't support the Greens. On May 19, Mr Albanese said, people are entitled to have that certainty of the tax cuts that have been legislated, unquote. Prime Minister, you need a meeting with your Treasurer and tell him what you've said. Or is the ambitious Dr Chalmers umming and ahhing about whether to reverse the tax promise, deliberately digging a hole for Prime Minister Albanese to fall into? This Labor tax cut battle may have only just begun. Well, before we go, on Tuesday night, I spoke about a moment during last weekend's Conservative Political Action Conference that attracted the attention of tens of thousands of disillusioned Liberal voters. The moment was triggered by the former Liberal politician, a very good man, a very decent man, Nick Minchin, declaring that, quote, I don't think the Liberal Party needs a lot of changing, unquote. Well, the response from the CPAC audience was palpable. They booed, many shouted rebuttals, and the Liberals on stage were visibly shocked. Well, there's a, civil li a silver lining to this story. The good news is that the confrontation has inspired action and Sydney's eastern suburbs is the epicentre. Last Friday night, the recently formed Eastern Suburbs Conservative Forum met with Senator Alex Antich, very talented man and the man behind the successful push to revive the South Australian Liberal Party by encouraging Conservatives into branches. From what I understand, the event was a roaring success. One of the Conservative Forum's organisers said their focus was to remove the Liberal Party from the grip of the Green Left Liberals. He said, quote, Senator Antich recently helped rescue the South Australian Liberals from the grip of Green Left Liberals and return the party to its democratic free speech roots. This gave rank and file South Australian members a say in the running of our party. He went on, Alex explained how they took control from the left in South Australia. We now have a much clearer roadmap, unquote. The Conservative Forum spokesman continued, quote, the further green left our party has moved in each state, the more seats we've lost. WA moved to the extreme left. It's now left with only two parliamentary seats. South Australia didn't move quite as far left, but still got smashed. And the left-leaning Liberal Party in Victoria can't even beat Daniel Andrews. He said, quote, unless we return to providing competent conservative government, we'll impoverish ourselves as nothing green, woke or politically correct has ever put bread on anyone's table. Well, this bloke is bang on the money. I hope Matt Keane and his modern liberal clique are listening. The more green and woke the Liberal Party goes, the worse it performs, and the evidence is overwhelming. In 2013, Tony Abbott took 17 seats off the Labor Party after opposing Rudd's carbon tax. Actually, Tony Abbott took 25 seats off the Labor Party in two elections. Well, in 2016, Malcolm Turnbull lost 14 of the seats Tony Abbott gained after capitulating to the Greens and adopting a form of the carbon tax. As you know, in 2019, Morrison beat Bill Shorten in what the press dubbed the climate election by opposing net zero emissions. Morrison lost 
the May 22 election after betraying the electorate and committing to net zero at Glasgow. Peter Dutton, I hope you're listening. Purging the Liberal Party of the Green left is the only hope you have and the clock is ticking. That's all from me tonight. Thank you for your company. Fred Paul is coming up next. I'll see you next Monday night at eight o'clock. You are watching ADH. I'm Alan Jones. Good night.